You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Brett Salakis, a teacher, speaker, poet, and author. In this episode, we learn about Brett's background as a primary school teacher in Australia and Southeast Asia. We find out more about Brett's new book, A Mammoth Lesson, Teaching in the Digital Age. Brett shares insights into how he created this fictional story and its central use of metaphor to communicate ideas. Brett also reflects on why he wrote this book, recounting some of his professional and personal experiences and insights that got him moving with his writing process about 10 years ago. We learn more about Brett's central aim of supporting teachers to teach and learn in the digital age. Brett outlines the opportunities introduced with digital technology and the value of online connections, community and conversation, such as those embodied by the group hashtag AussieEd, the largest online network of teachers in Australia. Brett emphasises the lesson in the metaphor, that is, the crossroads on which educators find themselves and the significance of core principles in addressing the challenges that prepare students to adapt and develop new skills, tools and approaches in a changing world. Here's my conversation with Brett Salakis. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Good to speak to you again. Brother, always happy to be here. Very good. Now, we're going to go back in time 300,000 years, hopefully, but not right now. Um, Just take us back a little bit, because I'm interested in finding out who you are, what you did at school, maybe, what you were interested in, what you studied at university. How how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. Um, Look, I I, I guess uh, I've been a teacher for about... 26 odd years. Um, uh, grew up in Sydney uh, in the eastern suburbs. Love rugby. Uh, learned to surf at the bra. I, I went to school with uh, some of the bra boys. Some of your listeners may have heard them. I heard about the, oh, the yeah. bra boys. But um, yeah, I grew up, grew up at Maroubra. Uh, used to row the old surf boat. So grew up a little bit rough and tumble um, as well. Um, pretty working class family, let's say. My uh, both my my mum and dad uh, had well, relatively short periods uh, of uh, education. Neither of them finished high school. Uh, dad ended up as one of those guys who uh, went off to conscription in the Vietnam War. Um, had uh, an interesting time there. Came back and the world didn't really fit him. He's sort of one of those guys who then uh, signed up and went back for a went back again and uh, found himself a little bit. A little bit um, difficult reintegrating back into society, and and, and uh, my, my man was a sniper by trade. Um, but uh, so I, I, I do shock people when I tell them that uh, uh, Father Christmas for my first for my first Christmas when I was oh well it was my second Christmas, but I was one year old. I've seen the photographs. That um, uh, Santa brought me not a, Santa brought me a gun rack because Santa knew that over the years I would accumulate more than one uh, rifle and need a, need an entire rack in, upon which to, to store the rifle. So not, politi- not not politically correct or overly normal, particularly in Australia, maybe something more akin to uh, someone who grew up in the, in, in the United States and in, in Texas or something like that. But um, uh, I learned how to shoot before I could even actually uh, cock the rifle. Um, uh, but... Uh, Interesting sort of childhood. I look back now and notice that uh, my dad really was actually suffering a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, he had um, a fair few anger issues, let's say. He wasn't the wasn't the calmest of men. Um, so it was an interesting childhood, uh, one might say, without without exploring too much. Um, but uh, it, very, very strict on studying hard, 
had to go to university, had never had a choice. Uh, my sister and I, we, from, from day one, even though my parents never got an education, they valued education and they knew it was, a, I guess, a, a, an essential thing for us both to uh, embrace and, and, and take hold of. And always, always being protective and, and, and caring and compassionate for, for young children. So when the time came, I studied primary school teaching, um, primary school teacher by trade, went to the University of New South Wales. And, uh, yeah, taught, taught for about, like I said, 26-odd years. Uh, actually, in my early years, went off to Singapore. Uh, anyone who's listening to the podcast who uh, decides that they want to advance their career, uh, going to an international school setting, Fantastic option. You usually will have a, a, a either a two-year contract or a three-year contract. School I was at in Singapore was a two-year contract. But what that means is that every two years, there's a complete refresh of staff. So every year, there's a like a 50% of your entire school uh, needs a refresh. So if you stay at that school for more than one cycle, one, one contract, you're effectively one of the most senior staff within the entire institution by about the third or fourth year that you you've actually been there. So if you uh, if you hang around for a little while, you actually pick up some quite senior leadership roles um, relatively quickly. So I found myself being exposed to leadership uh, relatively early in my career. So within my twenties, um, different areas of of, of leadership, in, in, including even um, in, in in the later years, even even taking the actual the reins of the school for a, a, an acting period. But um, interesting, interesting way. In fact, my teaching methodology now, uh, I often say I'm a very East meets West teacher because as much as I'm, I'm trained and very progressive in, uh, uh, you know, obviously mindset uh, of, a, of a Western teacher, a contemporary Western style teacher, uh, when I was over there working with um, the, the Singapore system, it's uh, very, uh, very tight, very linear, and um, very high expectations on memorization of fact and knowledge, precision of grammatical, um, any grammar use, punctuation use, uh, things like that. You you could do a comprehension task, but if you've got, if you've got, uh, you know, a, a comma in the wrong spot, you're losing marks. You, you make four. So every every um, every grammatical error or punctuation error. In a, in a written response, despite the fact that you might actually have the question correct, actually deducts marks. So you could have fully comprehend and fully get everything right, yet still get zero in, in a very brutal, um, serious uh, education system. But you can score zero for it, even though you have full understanding and comprehension of, of, of the question and got it 100% correct. Um, so it, that definitely influenced my um, my vision and understanding of, of, of what it means to be an effective teacher. Hmm. Boy, you've got a very interesting background. Well, look, I think we all do, don't we? Like we all, when you um, when you uh, lift up a few people's stones and 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 you know peel back the peel back the pages, you you find out that uh, we've all lived relatively interesting lives, um, and we all shaped. We're we're all shaped by that, and I think um, I think I I, I definitely have been shaped. The type of teacher uh, that I am by, by my experience, I, I'm always called myself a, a fairly conservative style of teacher, but with a very modern um, application. So I'm a strong advocate of education technology. That's a real passion area of mine. So even from 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 Singapore days, uh, like from the, the late '90s, were had webcams and were video conferencing with schools on the other side of the world in, in, in the 90s um, and really trying to push boundaries, having having kids uh, do desktop publishing and making uh, news newsletters and newspapers and, and all that sort of stuff, but a balanced approach with traditional practices and traditional methodologies. And, and, and that balance of that, that, that East meets West, that respect the traditional approach, respect those traditional pedagogies, but wrap it in uh, very contemporary practices is very much what I'm about and 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 very much even shapes the the book that we're probably going to be talking about actually is a sort of the core of that. Yeah, we will. We'll find out all about that that book um very shortly. 
But um, I'm intrigued by this Eats meets West, meets West kind of concept. You kind of have given us a bit more info, but I mean, what did it, what does it mean on a practical level for you? Like you were over there in the 90s and you're using technology, but then like how do you get your head around it? Yeah, look, approach look, it? We, we all talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, we all we all look at the PISA results, right? So let, let me go back and let me let me jump, uh, I think, and just talk at PISA and the actual Singapore system and the way, because we all get very excited, well, politicians and, and, and the media get very excited, don't they? We, we, the when royal the, we, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I uh, get very excited when the PISA results come out and, and, and there's uh, lots of uh, cherry-picking of data and statistics that we can, like to report on. Can you just tell us what's PISA for those people that are not teachers maybe? Look, for, yeah, so uh, every few years, um, all of the well it started out only the OECD nations, uh, but actually has broadened out now to uh, a lot of other nations actually uh, come in. So, effectively, every few years, a random sam- sample of fifteen-year-old students from a, a country from the, a random selection of uh, locations, and then when schools are selected, a random selection of students within that school who are 15 at the time do a, a series of 30-minute assessments. So mathematics, science, English, and um, a fourth one. And the fourth one can vary from uh, from round to round. It's a little bit like the Olympics. You do it every every couple of years. Um, and what they do, they then uh, score the nation uh, based on how those 15-year-olds have performed, and they, and they then rank uh, everybody. Uh, rank all the countries and say, well, this country ranks first or whatever, and uh, based on based on that, that 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 scoring system. When you hear when when you hear in the media uh, there are falling standards or you know declining performance, all that sort of stuff, what that actually is referring to is is not necessarily a falling standard, but a a change in a country's rank relative to other countries. So Australia in the early, um, and I'm not quite sure when the PISA began, and I think it may have been in the 90s or something like that, maybe early 2000s. It hasn't been a huge length of time. We're not we're not talking about a program that's gone back, you know, 50 years or 100 years of data. Um, but um, in the, those early periods, Australia would often rank uh, in the top 10 or, or, or near the top 10. Uh, Australia was a very high-performing country. Uh, but what uh, we have noticed over time is the rank uh, has changed. Uh, so Australia is no longer scores in, the, in those higher ranks. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, and we can unpack a little bit, a little bit of that. But um, uh, one of the, the, I guess, the stars of, of the PISA ranking is, is Singapore. Um, Singapore always performed relatively well, but has pretty much established itself to regularly be number one in the in in the PISA ranks. Um, so it's easy to look at PISA and look at these international ranking systems and go, well, Singapore, um, they're doing something right. There there's things there that we should replicate uh, and, and move to our and move to our um, our nation. Now, what that doesn't take into account is the individual application of how how random those random selections of of students and schools are. Um, for example, in in China, uh, China don't necessarily randomise the, the the schools. China actually select the cities in which those schools are going to um, be done by, and uh, how how questionable perhaps. The um, uh, the the randomization of the the students from each school are um, it, it's up to those individual you know uh, the schools and then selecting the, these random students how how um, randomized is that or 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 are people um, selecting their best and brightest because we know uh, students who often are in remote and regional areas. Um, tend to not score as highly on standardised tests as schools from metropolitan uh, places. So as soon as you do something like, hey, well, we're only going to take the city, we're only going to do the, measure this test in the city, and that skews your data uh, straight away. Now, Singapore is very interesting, and it's it's taken the foot off the accelerator on this part uh, just a little bit, but certainly while I was there, 
Singapore actually stream their students. So this is one of the challenges of the, the temptation of saying, well, Singapore are doing something that we should replicate here because culturally things that happen in certain countries are not palatable in, in other countries. Like, like so, what? Well, this is exactly what I want to get to now. So these, the way that Singapore streams its what, students. So what's streaming? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, what, what Singapore does, what streaming is, is when you bundle your students based on their performance and you put them in a group of like similar like scoring students. So what happens is you, you you might get your your very best students and you move them into the same class. You might get your very poorest students and put them into the and you, into and the you, same you class. observed this and experienced it by the sounds of it when you were over there. Look, 100%. So this is actually how the entire Singapore system is based and it's actually quite brutal and this is where um culturally the way Singapore runs would be complete is completely diametrically opposite to uh, what we would call an egalitarian Australian um, system. So from from kindergarten, and they actually start at K2, so they have a non-compulsory kindergarten year, so they have kindergarten two, and then um, K1, that, that when everyone goes to school. Um, so you go, uh, you go kindergarten, from K1, two, three, uh, everyone's, everyone's just going to their local schools. In year four, they call it P4, so in P4, primary school four, you do your first lot of streaming. Uh, so everyone sits a, a, a national standardised test. Based on the performance of that test, the top one-third of all students get placed in the top one-third of all schools, middle third and middle, lowest third in the lowest. Now, Singapore, uh, we would we would do something like that in Australia and go, well, here are our students who are the most needy, so we're going to pour our, our resources into the, the students who are most needy. Singapore look at it from a... Uh, an investment strategy, almost like a business. Here are your potentially high-performing stocks. Let's put most effort into our high performance because that's where we're going to get the most growth and the most benefit and that's where we're going to get our highest return. So all of those students who get moved to the highest lot, they get the best-performing teachers and actually shifted to the best-performing students. They get the highest funding um, and, and, and whatnot. So straight away you can see it's very very valuable to you to have your child get into that top school as early as possible you then have another round of streaming in year six students get streamed again uh, and that determines their entire high school so if you are not a high performer in year four or year six you could find yourself in the bottom school i've taught uh, we, i was in an international school so we would do outreach and go into these schools and taught english in these schools when you go into a school that's in the, the lowest third, and this is a country that's sitting on the equator, you would have raw concrete walls, uh, louvers on the window, not even not even roof pan fans, just like a couple of pedestal fans um, just around you. You are drenched in sweat and absolutely dripping uh, by the ending. You go into uh, one of the high-performing schools, it is like a palace, marble columns, tech everywhere, the highest performing teachers get moved to the highest performing schools. So you've got your best teachers, your best resources, your best funding, the best facilities, and your best performing students all bundled in there. You can only go directly to university if you are in that top tier school. So the pressure for students to be very well drilled and very well rehearsed at doing a standardized testing starts from kindergarten onwards. They are dot perfect. I every everything perfectly in place. They are primed from kindergarten ruthlessly to perform high and, and perform accurately in a standard test. Culturally, that's just not something we do, particularly here, 15-year-olds. That's probably where you, we would say you would be at your most freest of your entire life as a 15-year-old. Do whatever you want. Enjoy life. Don't take life seriously. Culturally, very different. But somehow we think if we do a standard test with these two very, very different cultural approaches, that that's an equal measure. It just isn't. And that's 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 sort of the the Singapore story. Now I know I've told a lot about the Singapore story and not not too much about my story, but effectively, I uh, I, I leave Singapore, I come back to Australia. Uh, I, I I work as a, a, a religious education coordinator in some Catholic schools. I I I, I do some um, gigs uh, as a deputy and whatnot here as well. Uh, I end up going. I worked in a girls' school at MLC in Burwood. Um, I ended up uh, heading up as a like the the uh, uh, PEO uh, principal education officer for the 
Department of Education, um, looking after strategic partnerships and engagement. Um, then during COVID, actually uh, was fortunate enough to get a, a promotion uh, based on my work with our COVID response. So I actually uh, got put in charge of uh, the Learning From Home Hub that the New South Wales Department of Education created. I had quite a large team. Um, the team was fantastic. I remember we got some uh, commendations and some recommendations from the department, um, oh, sorry, the uh, the cabinet and uh, the premier, the department of uh, premier and cabinet, um, because at, during the first lockdown, our learning from home hub uh, for the department was actually uh, getting more traffic than New South Wales Health during the uh, during the first lockdown. So I think in just the first lockdown alone, we had about nine and a half million downloads worth of resources and and and, and a million and something uh, individual users and. It was uh, actually replicated and leaned on by a lot of other jurisdictions uh, across Australia. It was very, very successful. So based on on, on that, I had Hewlett Packard, HP, uh, reach out to me at the tail end of last year and ask me if I would like to deliver a large project for them. So I'm, I'm actually working uh, with Hewlett Packard as an education ambassador for Australia and just recently announced as New Zealand as well. Uh, so helping to promote digital pedagogy, which is my real passion area, digital pedagogy uh, and best practice and reinventing the classroom to improve performance um, across Australia and New Zealand. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I'm interested in finding about how to about this book that you've um, just recently published, and I understand it took a very long time. Didn't just kind of whip it up in a few months. It kind of took. Well, it didn't. Well, arguably, it did take three hundred thousand years. Yeah, it felt like three hundred thousand years. Clever, <laughs> clever. But tell us, tell us about it. What was the process that you undertook? Yeah, look, it it, it actually was a, a a very a very long process, and, and, and nothing particularly orthodox about it as well. Like a. Uh, it was kind of me stumbling around and, and giving up on the project a couple of times and then and then coming back to it. So probably from the actual writing component of it, it took about six years um, all up. Uh, the actual, so the, the book's called a, a Mammoth Lesson, Teaching in the Digital Age. It, it, it's all about my understanding and my thinking of how we teach with uh, good practice, good digital pedagogy, good digital practice. Um, but I, I start with this metaphor. Uh, and, and the metaphor is an important part of the whole story because the metaphor is what I used to use to teachers and students and when I would uh, do do talks and whatnot, I'd have this metaphor of this ice age, which is why you've kind of hinted a few times um, that it's a 300,000-year-old sort of process because it's uh, uh, it, it's all about this ice I'm age I'm just priming, priming the audience. Priming, yeah, just uh, preparing the field for me there. But... Um, no, so it starts actually off with this metaphor. And this metaphor is something I've probably used for about a decade or so. Um, I, I used this metaphor and the metaphor kind of evolved over time as well. Uh, uh, and, and, then I, and, and then I finally put pen to paper and actually wrote it down. Uh, and then the book spawned from that. So uh, without giving away all the, way, all, all, all the secrets, uh, effectively there's a, a, an ice age Group of people, a family of, of of people, and and you might guess from the title, a, a mammoth lesson. It involves some woolly mammoth, and I, I used to use this this metaphor of how this ice age group of uh, people would would pass knowledge on from generation to generation, and and, and um, uh, deal with the mammoth. And they had these core values and these core principles uh, that were were part of their curriculum, I guess. Uh, in the book, I end up calling it spears, S P E A R S, and each each letter sort of stands for one uh, one, one of these core principles. What do I call that thing again? It's a, uh, an acrostic acronym? poem. Oh, yeah, an acrostic poem, an acronym, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, as, oh, as an acronym. Do. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, yeah. So I, I, I've used this used this metaphor to to talk. I'm a primary school teacher by trade, so I love telling stories. Yeah. What's um, what's we know what a metaphor is. Well, I do, but what just bring us up to speed? When you use that word metaphor, what is that? Look, I, I guess it's um, well, it's it, it's it's storytelling. It's it's like an anecdote. I'm I'm explaining a explaining a situation almost like a through like a parable. I'm explaining a situation 
using a different context to explain the nuances of, of, of a complex issue. So teaching in a modern and a, mod, a modern teaching approach, a modern pedagogy, um, modern pedagogy can be rather complex, and we and we don't even have an agreed an agreed sort of understanding of what best practice is. What what are we trying to do when we've got a, a digital approach uh, to to learning? Now, one other thing we don't know is we actually don't know how well we we know our ice age brothers and sisters brothers and sisters hunted mammoth. We don't actually even know. Do you know what? We don't actually know how they did it. We, we, there's no clear, there's no clear agreed historical um, agreement. This is one of the ways this this metaphor um, comes together. We, we don't actually have an agreement of how um, our Ice Age families, our Ice Age peoples, used to hunt the mammoth. The best that we have, um, there's a, a location in Europe where there's a whole bunch of mammoth bones at the bottom of a cliff. Um, so they think maybe, maybe. What used to happen uh, was they would sort of almost spook a herd uh, and, and, and get some fire and get some hunt and throw their spears and whatnot and and, and actually get spook the herd and, and, and drive them like lemmings almost um, off the edge of a cliff. And then because mammoths are very big, very hard to very hard to take down. They've got the fur, um, put our spears have penetrated, all that sort of stuff. It's, it, 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 it's, it, it's very difficult to hunt mammoth, but our, our, um, our ancestors did it and did it effectively, too effectively, <laughs> because they ended up being no more mammoth. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that whilst our ancient selves were able to do this, our modern selves actually have huge disagreement over how it could be done. So, for example, even in that best example that I just explained then, and it makes logical sense, right? Bones, we know there are bones at the bottom of this big cliff. Um, it makes sense, right? Okay, yeah, they probably... They probably uh, scared them and spooked them off. But what about if we were living up the top of the cliff and then we were eating the mammoth and we, you don't want to live near your, you don't want to yeah. live near your rubbish. Maybe they just threw the bones over the edge. Yeah, they chuck. Maybe they had nothing to do with how they hunted. Maybe, maybe it was their 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 trash. Like you know, a mitten, like a mitten, um, indigenous mitten with the shells. Exactly, exactly yeah. like that. And this is just one location. Not every location in the world where there were mammoths had big cliffs that you you could spook mammoths to jump off. So how did they hunt them in the rest of the world? So evidence record is fragmented by the sounds of it. Fragmented. And and, and I guess that matches the situation where we're at too, where we're trying to go, well, how do we tackle this best practice for using this this digital? Now, that's not the, the main lesson within the metaphor, but that's actually what kicked that's actually how I came to use the metaphor. That's that's what started me in using this mammoth terminology. Um, you know, I, I used to I, I used to um, talk a lot about Paleolithic life and and how uh, with the invention of fire, uh, you know, you'd, you'd bring fire into the into the cave, but you wouldn't you wouldn't let your children take the fire into their little um, cordoned off room in the cave because of fear of they might they might burn the burn their Burn themselves, or or burn their little um, room or cave room down when they were there. It is the same the way. Vet, the how concept yeah, of fact, fire, yeah, yeah, and and so how do we have the same risk when we're bringing in our technology and letting children go off to their rooms unsupervised? We don't leave them unsupervised with fire. We wouldn't let. Do we let them unsupervised, or or when do we do that transition of independence? So there's a lot of metaphorical links with technology and. And modern tech and digital tech and and this Paleolithic this um this this caveman style of uh, ice age uh, explosion of their types of new technologies. So just a mammoth whisker before that, what you must have identified a need. This is needed for this kind of this confusion amongst your teaching colleagues or something like that. And wouldn't it be great if you if there was something that would enlighten them or something? What what was the initial trigger? For you to get all this mammoth thinking and metaphors happening, yeah. Look, look, look. Just wondering. I, yeah, I've always it was probably a couple of probably a, a couple of things. So, um, I in Singapore, I held two leadership positions. As you remember, I, I did say it, it, it's a way to when you teach abroad, it's a way to kind of expedite your 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 um, leadership opportunities. So very early on, I picked up two additional uh, responsibility. 
One, I was uh, the curriculum officer and I, I held um, like curriculum uh, appointments at a number of schools that I've worked with uh, over the years. But because I was tech savvy and comfortable with technology, uh, I also was the, the ICT coordinator at, at my school. So I had these two intertwined positions that were separate, but um, I ended up intertwining them because if I'm working on technology and, I'm, and I was in charge, and like I said, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, um, dawn of the internet type of stuff, um, uh, where we're trying to, uh, I was trying to weave those two pieces, those two threads together right, right from the outset. So very much from my original um, work in, in technology, it was integrated into my roles of responsibilities with uh, curriculum and, and uh, technology overlapping. So my mind has been of this from the very early times of being a teacher. Um, I have, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to hold back a little bit because um, uh, I'm going to need to have about another two hours or so if I, if I, if I uh, open up this next Pandora's box. Bring but it on. I have, um, I had a significant uh, life-changing event in, um, I had a significant life-changing event uh, probably about 10 years ago. And uh, I found. Uh, do you know what? I'll, I'll go, I'm going to fly over. And if I get too, you can call me. You can call me back if I get a little bit too deep into this, and and uh, we start going. And I might have to reach for the tissues if I if I personally get in there a little bit too deep. But look, I'm a, I'm a big family man. I uh, I've got five children. Um, if I if if I was a generation or two ago and I'm back in the villages, I, I, I'd probably be one of those guys who have about 15 children. Absolutely love kids. Being a primary school teacher. Uh, it, perfect job for me. Um, I had a challenging divorce, not Robinson Crusoe there, uh, but um, found myself in a situation where uh, my former partner played pretty hard and uh, I was uh, at, at that point had a period where I was unable uh, to see my kids. I... I, I was too proud to ask for help of anyone. I kept it secret. In fact, I didn't even tell my parents for about two years. Uh, I, my uh, money got tied up. I had uh, no money. Uh, I kept everything secret. I um, reason I couldn't see my kids is because I had I had nowhere to live. Uh, I couldn't take anything from my uh, former home because I felt if anything I took, I took away from my children. So I took nothing. Um, I effectively had a bag and my car and um, uh, no money, uh, anything like that. It was tied up in the house. These things take time, right? Um, so I lived in my car for a while. Uh, I, I had no, I had my, someone kindly emptied my bank account for me before before they executed on a few moves. So I had no access to any money um, and things took time to, to negotiate and unpack. Uh, I ended up living in a men's shelter for about eight months. Uh, whilst I was in that men's shelter, um, well, the men's shelter was pretty hard, I've got to be honest with you. I um, It was 12 guys, uh, most of them transitioning out of prison, um, had a range of different addictions, uh, alcohol, drugs, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't a very safe place to be. It wasn't very clean. Um, a bit difficult uh, having a sheer shower with um, uh, 12 other blokes who aren't the uh, – most civil of gentlemen. Uh, so I would often um, sneak into work early, uh, shower at work, get changed, uh, uh, you know, eat best I could, uh, come home. It was a it had one tiny little room. It was size of a prison cell, to be honest with you. Um, I had a mattress that was on the floor and maybe about a, a meter around the edge of, of, of the mattress, and that was about all I had. Um, uh, from there, I, uh, I was broken. Absolutely. I, I was a broken man. Um, not being able to see my children, um, destroyed me. I, I mean, I could see them, don't get me wrong. I still coach their football teams and their cricket team and, and all that sort of stuff, but having no place to bring them to, to live, to let them sleep, to, um, be with was, was very difficult. Uh, can you imagine, um, a household of five children, the noise the noise of a of, of a house, a small house with five children, 
uh, and the chaos of that 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 I love, um, and then the contrast, the, the, the silence of yeah. a very small room, um, a very very small room by yourself, uh, surrounded by dangerous um, elements. Uh, it was uh, it was very very difficult. It was a very very dark time. Um, had some very very dark thoughts. It was a tough period. When you are stripped of everything, when you are stripped from everything, I was like raw. I was stripped raw. Um, things that you had valued previously uh, sun- suddenly mean nothing. You find out what your really what your real true values are. Uh, I had often said to people, I was always, always have been very in awe of people that had deep passions, like, you know, the, the commitment that comes with someone that's so insanely focused and passionate about something, like whether it's a, like an Olympic gymnast that can get up at 4 a.m. and train for like 10, 10 hours a day and it's the commitment and the focus. I, even even like religious people, I've, I don't even care of what denomination that can be like so passionate about what they do and people who learn an instrument and just know it inside out or or, or history and just 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 know things like encyclopedias and it's just so, so what did that those mean? people have always fascinated me. What did but that mean for you? I was gonna say I was always jealous. Or not jealous is maybe the wrong word. I was in awe of those people. But when I was stripped of everything, when 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 everything was taken away from me. Suddenly, all I had left, the only thing I had left, was um, what? What? What did I value? What was I? What? What did I care about? When, when I had nothing else, when I had no other noise, when suddenly everything was quiet, everything was taken from me. What? 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 What did I actually care about? And 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 I found that you know what I what I loved and, and what I realized I had always loved, just not had been aware of it. I had always loved teaching. I'm a big teacher nerd. Always loved teaching. And I'm a passionate about, I love tech. Um, so this convergence of technology and teaching and pedagogy, this, 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 this bringing together of, of the, these two elements is, is I'm aware now, I'm clear, I see clearly that that is my passion. Uh, and that's where I, I, I have worked very hard for the decade since to make a big splash and make a lot of noise. That's why I started Aussie Ed. Most people who, who know me, most people who know me will know me through the movement Aussie Ed. So Aussie Ed grew to be the largest online network of teachers in Australia. Uh, it started as a Twitter chat. People, uh, there is a there is a, a public version of, of of how Aussie Ed started, and it's true. It's it's when I started uh, at the school I was at. We we were one of first four trial schools when iPads were first invented, uh, and we and I needed to find a new way to do professional development because no one else had used iPads before. So the only way we could connect and, and learn and share was not by going to courses because no one else had used them. We were the first ones playing with it. Um, the only way to connect was actually to go online and, and connect with people online. And that's when I found hashtags and education groups online, et cetera, et cetera. So I replicated that for Australia. That's the public version. The private version is the story I've just told you. And I'm going to tell you now, hand on heart, that's the second time in my life I've said that out loud. I hint it in the book. I kind of explain it in the book. Um, it's been cathartic in the book uh, to actually pen down a secret that I've held for about eight years. Actually, to have written it down, um, I, 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 I now feel like I publicly own my own story. Uh, it's no longer something that I hid and, and snuck into school and, and showered in silence. Um, the, a lot of people who have known me for a long time, very close friends, uh, have have opened up the book and 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 been a little bit shocked to say, dude, I didn't even know. How did, how did you keep that a secret? Um, but it's uh, that that's an important part. So the the secret is that when I was lost, when I was completely lost, I reached out to my teacher network. I made Aussie Ed. It saved my life. I made Aussie Ed to connect with other teachers, and in connecting and building community. I, 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 I built a I built a pseudo family. I built a pseudo family uh, uh, around me, and this this online network of people just exploded. And for those people who don't know, certainly don't know of Aussie Ed when it was in its prime. Now after after COVID, it's it, it's not what it was. It's not what it once was. But in its prime, um, Aussie Ed would trend globally, globally, 
uh, we would be the number one trending uh, hashtag in New Zealand, Australia, UK sometimes, America sometimes, because um, the East Coast, we, we would run the chat on uh, 8.30 on, a, on a, a Sunday night in Australia. It's about 6.30 a.m. in America, 5.30, 6.30, depending on daylight savings, et cetera. So when the Americans woke up, the only hashtag that was firing was Aussie Ed. So we would trend in the States. It was it was nuts. It was huge. I've had over the years a, a, a lot of people who actually did their PhD in statistics actually used Aussie Ed to map the statistical distribution of um, in, engagements because it was such a global interconnect. We would have between five to 20,000 people in any one chat, like each Sunday. So for those people that are not, I'm sure that there's like literally thousands of people that know exactly what you're talking about, but what... What do you the, the for people that don't use Twitter that are not educators? What's what are they doing? You kind of got all these people, and you've got a trending hashtag. But what are the messages about? What are they? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a that's a really good question. So let me let me take a step back and explain um, what is generically known as an ed chat. So a, a, an educational chat. So people have chats on Twitter. So often when you're using social media or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Uh, it's just an individual posting, one individual post. As soon as you use a hashtag, the hashtag has is a group of a group of those um, uh, individual messages. So it can it, it can be grouped. Now, if you build a community around a certain hashtag, particularly if you have a routine that at a particular time on a particular day, um, you encourage members of that community to share, then suddenly you're uh, all using that hashtag at the same moment so you can follow the hashtag and see a trend of conversation. So what we used to do is we used to pick a different expert each week. We would have, um, you, know, uh, you know, someone someone who would talk about consent, um, someone who would talk about literacy, someone who would talk about inquiry learning, someone who would talk about explicit teaching, someone who would look at mathematics, and sometimes very nuanced, sometimes very broad. Um, but we bring every week a different a different expert, and uh, that person would ask a series of questions. And maybe every say five or ten minutes, they would pose a different question and use the hashtag. And then everyone who happened to be looking at that hashtag would see that question pop up and then respond to that question. One of the um, the most interesting things that I ever saw, and a perfect example of this, is we were talking about the importance of sport in uh, education. Now, I assumed that conversation was going to go along the lines of um, sport, PE, teaches us about health and healthy eating and lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there was a teacher there was a teacher in Tasmania who started asking about road safety, uh, particularly bike safety on the roads. Um, a, a teacher in Adelaide responded and, and had this side conversation about how their, their – um, uh, local bike shop helped with the police and and they actually ran uh, bike safety courses and there was a, a little, the police had built out a, a community pretend sort of road network that you could take the kids to and the police would run um, like... Um, simulated environment. Simulated um, sorts of things. Uh, someone tagged in. Um, it just happened to be that the um, Tour de France was um, uh, uh, kicking off um, because we're talking about bikes, people started, you know, side conversations started happening. Somehow, um, Cadell Evans uh, got tagged into the chat whilst he was over in England because at that particular year, the um, the, the uh, Tour de France was beginning in England and they went through the, the channel, the, the channel bridge to go over to France. Um, and he responded and said that the bike shop that he owns or was sponsored by or something like that in Adelaide, um, had that community outreach program and that he could help facilitate the little school that wanted to be able to connect in with the... So here you go, this national-based conversation with, uh, you know, me here sitting in Sydney and and, and, and a broad team. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I run Ed. I, I may have been the instigator, but I, I've got a team of about 10 or 12 fantastic, passionate people that, that make these chats happen um, each week. Um, and uh, I can't remember who had organised this particular chat. I know it wasn't me. Um, but but here I am thinking, well, this chat's always this chat's going to be about health and safety and fitness and obesity and all that sort of stuff. And it ends up with a teacher in 
uh, a teacher in Tasmania having a side conversation with a teacher in Adelaide, and we get Cadell Evans, um, the, the 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 athlete, um, connecting in and helping a local school solve a problem whilst he was in England getting ready for the French uh, for the Tour de France. That's the sort of thing that is possible on a global scale when you have these Twitter chats and these education connections on online. So most people who know me, as much as I'm an experienced teacher and, like I said, 26 years in education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, the, the way most people know who I am uh, happens to be through through my uh, online social media presence. So I was for about six years the, the most follow uh, teacher on, on, on Twitter uh, in Australia. I had the largest, uh, I no longer do, my, my very good friend, Eddie Wu, who who uh, a lot of people know Eddie Wu. Eddie Wu not only um, overtook me, but uh, has rocketed uh, past me. I don't think I'll ever even pretend to be able to catch him. But um, so he's, he's left me with the silver medal now, Eddie Wu. Um, but um, look, that's how most people come to know uh, about, uh, about me and about the work I do, particularly the work I do with education technology. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So in terms of your your book, what like what sort of processes were in place? Like it sounds already right from the get-go that it's not your conventional approach. To, yeah. to kind of teach a professional development, really, you're kind of talking about metaphors and then you've got this woolly mammoth. And then, to, I mean, tell us a little bit more about this unconventional approach and then what's what was what's the purpose of such a book and such approaches? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That, that's actually a very good question because the book is authentically me and um, – what you might uh, what you might find is, and, and probably as as we chatted, uh, I, I'm a little bit um, wear your heart on your sleeve type of guy. I'm I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm all heart. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate. And uh, my first iteration of the book um, wasn't necessarily as authentically me. Um, I, I I used the meta- the metaphor. I used that that mammoth metaphor uh, that I love. And then I went into a, a traditional style or format of a book where I looked at unpacking how to use how to use um, technology effectively within um, within the classroom. It never spoke to me. I never loved. I never really loved it. It, it was a good book. Like I, I, it ticked all the boxes. I had my metaphor. It was real. It was what I believed in, etc. Um, everything that I wrote was, you know accurate and researched and evidenced and and all that sort of good stuff that a, a, a book is supposed to be. Uh, and I'm sure it still would have done well and been useful, but I wasn't in love with it. Uh, so it was about 90% done and I just kind of shelved it. I just was like, I just just didn't love it. I just, I couldn't, I was, it never got to the point where I could go, right, that's done. I'm happy with that. Um, and then COVID came, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I took quite a, a senior role or a, or a, a very high-stakes, high-intense high role during the COVID period, leading that um, learning from home response as part of the, the um, Educational Continuity Task Force for New South Wales. Um, and I, I was pulling like 16-hour days and all that sort of stuff. It was a big, big job, and, and the book just got put on the back burner. It just was gone. It sat there. It did nothing for about two years. I thought about it every now and then, and then I did nothing with it. And then uh, coming out of COVID, a, a a friend of mine. Now, mind you, I'm, I might just jump back a sec. So I had been looking earlier and 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 getting some mentoring and then and talking to some publishers right from the outset because so I pitched the idea of the Mammoth book before I even started it. So I was actually working with a guy called Dave Burgess. Now, a lot of your listeners might know Dave Burgess as the, the teach like a pirate guy. Like if you've ever heard of teach like a pirate, um, probably uh, one of the one of the, the most um, 
most purchased, most well-known books in the last so five or ten years within uh, education. Like it was a bit of a game changer uh, from from his style. He wrote this book. It was so successful that he ended up set, setting up his own publishing house on the back of of that book. Um, so he now uh, has Dave Burgess Publishing, uh, or, or you know, Teach Like a Pirate Publishing, and, and they've published something like you know, close to a hundred hundred books from from different educators over, over time. Uh, I was working with Dave um, to shape the the, the Mammoth book. I, I had secured my publisher uh, before before I had even started the book. Conceptually, he he loved it, and he was helping me work work through it. And was we knew it was something special, but it it never got finalised into what it potentially could be. And uh, we neither of us could could just agree on, on, on what that missing sort of uh, secret source was. Um, then o- over the pandemic, from talking to Dave and whatnot, Dave had other other priorities and other things and the um, uh, and, and the publishing house got put on hold for a little bit while he, he dealt with some personal issues for himself as well. Um, and Dave, he ended up putting me in contact with a, a different uh, publisher from North America, someone who specialised in education books. Uh, the the code breaker team and um, pitched them the story and they fell in love with it. They were like, dude, we've got to have this. This is so different. This is different to anything that we've got. It's so left of field. Um, fantastic. We want it. So I said, yeah, you beauty. It's it's like 90% done. Give me a couple of weeks. I'll wrap it up. Easy. I reread the book after two years of it sitting there and all the things that had happened in COVID. And I went from having a book that I liked to, you know what, hated it. So I deleted about 80% of it. You had critically reassessed your work. Critically reassessed the work. And um, so it took probably about another six or seven months. That, 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 that two or three week extension that I asked for took about another six or seven months. But what I ended up doing was creating a book that was very, very me. Um, the entire book is like... I feel, even though I don't articulate this, I don't, I don't state this in the book and say, this book is me, or, or reading this book, you will see my personality. But I know my person that the book's form is like if you hang out, if you hung out with me for a day, the my personality traits, that's what you, you you see in the book. So the book has like really three elements to it. So it's got this big story at the beginning that we've already sort of discussed, this this, this big metaphor. Like I said, I'm a story, I'm a storyteller, I'm a primary school teacher. That's where my, uh, I guess, my skill set lies. Uh, I'm also a massive nerd. Um, I listen to my history podcast. I like knowing things. Um, if ever you want to hang out, Mark, uh, best place to hang out with me is uh, is ping me and say, Salakis, do you want to go out and play some trivia? Uh, you get me excited if you say you want to go and play trivia. I like knowing things. Um, and uh, so I, I like learning. I like knowing. I like, I like trivia. I, I like stuff. Uh, so this comes out in the book, uh, and, and I'll explain how in a second. And then the, the, the third element is a, what we said about that, um, what's your passion area? And I said my passion is, is, is teaching. Uh, so it's, it's very much about the, the, the practical elements of teaching and how we can use some of these digital points to teach. So the way the book is structured is it kicks off with this metaphor. And in that metaphor, I have those six, those SPEARS, that, that SPEARS acronym that I mentioned to you. So I've got that SPEARS acronym, and I'm not going to unpack that acronym because I'm going to make all your listeners read the book. But um, uh, so we've got that SPEARS acronym. Then in the, the next section is those six, those six elements. And to unpack those six elements, I do that two ways. So I have what I, I each, say, for example, like S, um, uh, I, I, I look at the S or I look at the P and I have a mammoth provocation. And that mammoth provocation is real history, a real true historical um, uh, way that that principle, that, 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 that ideology has been used historically in our world and how that played out and, and how we can learn from that. So it's real history, uh, real fact. Then it leads into, well, here's, four or five practical ways that you can apply that principle in in your classroom at your school. So we've got this storytelling element, we've got this historical learning element, and then you've got this practical element. So like I said, it's it's hanging out with me. If you if if you hung out with me 
for a day or an afternoon. You would oh, for sure hear a story. That's what we're doing right now. Isn't it? <laughs> what we're doing right now. You would for sure hear a story. You would for well, sure hear you say stories. nerdy facts about history, and I'd talk about teaching. Guarantee those three things, and that's how the book is shaped. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you've got the definite vibe. I I feel as though I have an appreciation of what you're talking about just from us chatting, really. It's yeah. kind of like the swirling of those, you know, the technology, the te uh, teaching aspect. It's kind of like capturing all of that. And I guess you kind of had that um, an inkling, you're more than an inkling that they, oh, yeah, no, this is not working. And then this other element, and then you manage to kind of drag that down or yeah. drag it up or wherever this yeah. mysterious as to where this comes from, but have it on the page. So I will say I was very, very nervous before the release of the book because it wasn't just a book about stuff. It was me. I was on the pages. It was, it was, I, I, my book is my personality. And, and I guess there's, um, uh, you know, that, that critical reflection. And you always ex obviously expect critics and no one's, you don't, I don't, I'm not so arrogant to think that everyone's going to, see what I've, I've put forward and go, wow, that's the best idea ever. We sh the whole world should change teaching and do this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't think that at all. Um, uh, I try and ask a lot of questions actually um, in the book and, 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 and don't always give answers, but there's lots of provocations about, hey, we should be thinking about this stuff and this is why we should be thinking about this stuff and here's how some of the things that we could be doing. Um, uh, but because it is very raw me, it is raw me in some parts, um, a rejection of the book. I was very afraid that a rejection of the book was going to be a rejection of me. It did a risk assessment of that then, you know. I think I dove in. Like, do you know what? I panicked uh, and I was worried. I held back. Um, I, I gave it to the publisher. Actually, I almost backed out. I almost backed out. Um, I'm so glad I didn't uh, because it has been so warmly embraced by the education community. Um, it, it, I Never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined that my little book that took me six years to put together and that is very raw me would have hit bestseller list in three different countries. Like how? Like, uh, you know, pe people over over um, play the uh, over, overplay the word and, and say, oh, they were overwhelmed by something. Um, do you know what? The day that it exploded, um, uh, I overwhelmed was literally the, the, in, the, in the truest essence of that word. Um, how it was. So the, the book had been out for best part of a week, just quietly tickling along, nothing, nothing much. Um, it actually came to a Sunday. It was on towards a Sunday evening, and it must have been uh, some of the Americans, the size of 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 of, of America and Amazon America. So it, it, it's available in Barnes and Noble in in, in the states, and the, it's not in bookshops in Australia, which is kind of sad. I, I'd love to see it on on, on the bookshelves here, but. It's in Amazon um, for the rest of the world. It's in Barnes and Noble over in the States. But um, uh, in fact, a, a friend of mine actually took a photograph of it uh, on the on the shelves in an airport the other day in, at Boston Airport, and he took a photo and sent it to me. I was like, oh, that's the first time I've seen it on the shelf, even if it was you just, a, hit, just uh, a photograph. Cultural impact when you're yeah. on the shelf in an airport bookshop. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, so it, it uh, the, the publisher started um, – Peeing me late on a, uh, and they're based in Canada, uh, and and the publishers started peeing me and saying, um, uh, "Dude, you did you, you your book's in the top hundred? Your book's in the top hundred? Oh wow, um, oh fantastic, wow, you know, half an hour, dude, 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 it's in the it's in the top fifty, and then it just sort of started climbing, and then once it sort of got up there at, at the top in America, it obviously just the way Amazon worked its algorithm, and it just started changing and, and got into um." And it got at the top of everyone's sort of recommended list and, and whatnot. Uh, and it actually hit number one in education in, in, in the US. And pretty much once it hit US number one, it went nuts in Australia. It just went nuts. So uh, it was number one in Australia for almost two weeks solid. Um, like, uh, and it hit, hit number one in Canada for, for, for a couple of days as well. Um, like it was, it was phenomenal, fen absolutely phenomenal. It sold out. The entire first print run sold out in the, in, in, in the States. Like, um, uh, it was on. It was on back order for a little while. So, like, it was never, never in my wildest uh, imagination could I have um, could I have expected it, it to be so well. So, 
I'm um as I, as, I, as I alluded to you obviously before like I'm, I'm by myself and have been for a long time now um you know I, I get my kids on a couple of days a couple of days a week I fought pretty hard uh so I do have my children uh, a few days a week uh now but I had dropped them off probably about lunchtime on Sunday and I was by myself and, and this was all happening and I'm in my in my uh, my big house that I've got here now I've got like a, a very been able to you know claw my way back up but I've got a a pretty nice, um, like a sizable, sizable house, and um, uh, lonely. Never, I've never felt the, I guess the um, uh, the two extremes of of so much joy uh, and so much relief and excitement of um, your passion and your risk and your uh, uh, being so warmly accepted. Um, uh, met with the intense loneliness of not having anyone to share that that um, with. It was actually very, very overwhelming. I, I actually sat down. Um, I couldn't stand. Um, my my legs my legs were my legs were weak. I, I actually had to sit on the lounge for about three hours. I called my best mate um, who uh, lives up in Newcastle. He actually stays has to come to Sydney for work uh, once a fortnight. Um, so he, he normally stays. He normally stays. Uh, I'm very lucky. Um, I get to have sleepovers with my best friend, uh, like 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 you do when you're when you're a kid. Uh, I get I get to have my best friend come for sleepovers once a, once a fortnight, uh, and we we hang out and and, and do nerdy stuff together. Um, but I was talking to him, and um, he he knows he knows me well, uh, and he saw the the conflict of emotions or heard the conflict of emotions. In uh, without me knowing, uh, he jumped in the car and 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 you know did the couple of hours driving down from Newcastle, and I. You know, about eleven o'clock at night, I heard the knock on the door, and um, there was my best mate. Um, so I shared sort of the the evening uh, uh, with him, but um, a very very overwhelming experience. Just the, um, I'm I'm so grateful and, and you know just humbled and and, and 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 just so pleased that when you take such a big risk and you and, and you be so raw and, and and when you are like me and you put your heart right out there um, to have this book so warmly accepted uh, by the education community. Um, it's been quite affirming. Uh, yeah, very, 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 very happy for for how it's gone. So, um, can we recap just the book? What what's the what's the sort of driving? What's the learning outcome? Maybe for yeah. adult learners. These are adult learners that pick up a book and it's unconventional, and it, but it's got a driving kind of driving ideas so what are they what are they you know after reading brett um after reading brett's um book i should be able to look look um it it sounds like it's hidden but it's actually there in the title it's it there is a lesson to be learned there is a lesson in the metaphor there is a lesson that the uh well the yoga dep family um, which is pedagogy spelt backwards. The Yoga Dep family uh, in 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 the book um, uh, learn, and uh, as their as their curriculum is challenged uh, with the extinction of the mammoth and 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 their 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 curriculum of how to hunt mammoth and and the challenges that they have um, uh, changing their curriculum for their young hunters to go out and learn to hunt in a world that has as different animals and different techniques and different devices to hunt different types of prey. That's the metaphor for, well, we are now, how do we prepare our students for the uh, a world in which what we previously had as, as our curriculum goals and pr- curriculum principles, how well adapted are they to this digital age? Uh, so it challenges us to understand well, what is the mammoth lesson? What is the big lesson that the Yoga Dep family had to learn? And we are in this situation right now where we're at this crossroads of we are having our young hunters uh, go out and learn how to hunt with different tools and different techniques and catch different prey and not mammoth, but a whole range of different things. And what are our core principles? We we know that the Yoga Dep had these six core principles. What are our core principles? Uh, and if we had a clearer understanding of what the core principles that we are trying to achieve as educators in the modern landscape, 
suddenly we can get rid of this all these arguments about PISA and we can get rid of all these arguments uh, about what's the coolest device or what's the coolest program or anything because then we can focus in on what are the principles that we most value. When we understand what those core principles are with modern education, then we'll be able to move forward as, a, as, as an education community. That's the lesson that I want people to be able to take away from reading this book. In this episode, I chatted with Brett Salakis, a teacher, speaker, poet, and author. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including information about Brett, Aussie Ed, and Brett's new book, A Mammoth Lesson, Teaching in the Digital Age. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.